Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. It's hard to know where to start this week. It's hard to know where we're going to end up. Um, help? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. Luckily, we've got someone here who might be able to help, although I... Or not. (laughs) Helen Thompson and I are here together. It's just us. I don't know what this is, talking therapy or something like that. We're going to work our way through it. So I'm just going to start with how I see it. And then, Helen, you're going to fill in all of the enormous gaps in this. So there have been moral victories this week and rhetorical victories being claimed. And I'm sure there have been some Pyrrhic victories too. But... That's all in the eye of the beholder. There seem to me two facts that are hard to dispute their significance. The first is that Boris Johnson is still Prime Minister. We we discussed it was unlikely that he was going to be removed, but that was an option. And he and his advisers calculated rightly that the opposition did not have the numbers for that. They couldn't put together an alternative government. So he's still Prime Minister. He's prorogued Parliament. He's, for now, that has worked so he will almost certainly be Prime Minister when Parliament comes back, unless his health or his nerve give way, which is possible, because he doesn't look in great shape. But I think we have to assume that he will be Prime Minister for the Queen's speech, and then almost immediately it will be him and his team who go to negotiate the end game of the Brexit talks. So that's fact one. Fact two is that the opposition did then manage to organise around legislation requiring him to sign a letter which he hands to Donald Tusk seeking if there is no deal an extension for three months so these are the two things that no one can dispute one I think is a kind of victory for Johnson and one is clearly a defeat the bit I struggle with is how they go together and it seems to me that Johnson's opponents have made a mistake here because though it is true that he can't do what was mooted in the press a couple of days ago, write another letter saying, I don't mean the first letter, that would clearly be illegal. I think Jonathan Sumption said it would be illegal. But he doesn't have to do that. As I understand it, if he hands that letter, Tusk and and the others, the other European leaders will say to him, what's the extension for? That's almost an unspoken rule of this game, that you ask for an extension for a reason. And he can give a legal and honest answer, which is either there is no reason, or the reason is to try and remove me as Prime Minister. It's a purely political act. And if you look at the text in the legislation of the letter that he has to sign, it does not have a reason. And actually, it treats the Europeans with a kind of contempt. It, it says, we're playing our political games, and this is what we want. But if you put that letter in the hands of someone who doesn't believe in it, he's not breaking the law if he says to them, there isn't a reason, or this is just designed to do me down. And that's a huge gamble. I entirely agree with you on on the second point. On the first, this is as much thinking out loud as I think pretty much anybody's trying to think about this is is doing when all said and done. It seems to me that he could resign the day before, say, he was supposed to be going to Brussels to give this letter. So he could come back when Parliament starts again, try to carry through discussions to try to get some changes, gets to the point where they 
haven't happened and then go to the Queen and say that he's no longer willing to serve as Prime Minister before having to go to Brussels. I'm not saying he will do that. I'm just saying I think that it's a possible course of action. Because if he does go armed with this letter, it's kind of, it doesn't make any sense to send him to negotiate on the basis of something that he clearly doesn't believe in or agree with. So it's not clear how those negotiations could come out. But I think, again, he would have to be very skillful to do this. But I think he does have a possible advantage here, which is if he hands over the letter and he says to them, this is what Parliament has instructed me to do, I can't give you a reason. I can't tell you what we'll do in these three months that will make it better. Actually, I think, personally, he can say it will make it much worse. And they give the extension anyway. He can then come back to Britain and say, this is a kind of stitch up between my opponents in Parliament and my opponents in Brussels, because I couldn't give them a reason and they did it anyway, and they're breaking their own rules. And if you compare the letter to the one that Theresa May wrote, the two that she wrote to Donald Tusk, which were replete with reasons and excuses and rationales and justifications and possible scenarios, and this letter is peremptory. It's kind of dismissive. And I think there's actually two problems with the existence of the letter and what it says in the, the text. The first of them is what you said, which is is that it's so dismissive of the EU, of simply that the EU must accommodate the United Kingdom's domestic politics. If you were the EU 27 government leaders reading this, you'd think, why on earth would we want a state that behaves like this to be in the European Union? Now, given that some of the people behind the letter actually do want the United Kingdom to stay in the, the European Union, that seems, at the very least, odd. And it does encapsulate, I think, the simple fact that many of the people on the stop Brexit side have not ever had any coherent strategy for how the United Kingdom can stay in the European Union. In some sense, staying in the European Union hasn't been about staying in the European Union. It's been about using that in terms of the United Kingdom's domestic politics. The second thing I think that's problematic from the point of view of the EU is, is the EU set up to deal with executives in terms of negotiations between governments and indeed much of the collective decision making of the European Union. The idea that it needs to respond to letters dictated to executives by legislatures is again not something I can see that it can want in its politics. Now you could say the way out of it from the EU's point of view is is that they could think okay we can't get anywhere at the moment as things stand and what this will bring about will be a general election in the UK and then we can see where we are. But the truth is that nobody, not here or in the EU, have got any idea how this general election is going to play itself out. So then you're still opening the EU 27 or the EU as a whole to this poison that UK politics is for them. And again, the timing is so complicated because I imagine that when it comes to the crunch, the EU will grant the extension because who's going to want to be the one that forces no deal? Even And it doesn't have to be Macron, even that, that hope that someone else, one of the others, one of the Eastern European states would veto this, but who's really going to want to put their head over the parapet? But still the EU, it's not written in EU law, but it is in the EU sense of how it works as a rule-based organisation, that even if the extension was granted for the sake of an election, they need to know when the election is or they need to have some sense of the timing. And the thing that's almost going to be impossible to agree, as we've seen this week, is for it to go back to the UK Parliament so that they can pass the legislation 
forcing an election, or at least they can have the vote in the terms of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act forcing the election so that the EU can be clear about what it is. They will have to take on trust that they're giving this extension as somehow. And Johnson doesn't have to call one. I mean, he's still Prime Minister. That's the. I think this is the mistake that's been made. Well, it's not that he doesn't have to call one. It's just that without Conservative votes, you might well not get to the required number of votes to get past the provisions of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. And of course, they could then, and they may well then, have a vote of no confidence in him. If we get to this situation where he's really kind of mucking around in Brussels and making it much harder for anything coherent to come out of the UK Parliament, then that might well trigger the vote of no confidence, and then that will force the issue of whether they can have an alternative government. But it's not going to be any easier then than it was now. No, not not at all. I mean, the best you can say is is that it's a three month extension, and not say a, a six month extension. So there would have to be a a general election well before the thirty first of January. But as you said, you need parliamentary arithmetic to bring that election about. It can't just come about of its own accord. And then you have to have some sense about what the possible outcomes of that election are going to be. And you know, if one of the possible outcomes of the election is is that the opposition, a coalition of the opposition is going to form the next government, then you've got, at least in some sense, if it's going to be the Conservatives and some alliance with the Brexit party, you kind of know what's going to come with that. But if it's the opposition in a coalition, what is going to come of that? Because once you get past the immediate events of the last few weeks, then on terms of Brexit, the opposition is fundamentally divided. So do you think it's possible... You've said this consistently, and you're one of the few people who has always said this, that we don't think nearly hard enough about how it looks from the European perspective, both European Union's perspective, its administrative structures, but more particularly the heads of the governments that are going to have to decide this. Is it possible that this is really awkward for them? This is much harder than the choices they had to make with May, and that we're getting close from their point of view to this being some pretty unpalatable options and that that pressure could force more accommodation around a deal. So it's inadvertent. I don't think there's some genius strategy here from Cummings and Johnson. I think they're flailing around. But is it at least possible, because they, have they, the opposition, have left him as prime minister, he's still calling the shots in some sense, unless the courts do something unexpected. We'll come on to that in a second. Is it possible that he does have more leverage now, armed with this letter, actually? This letter is so, in its way, incoherent and it produces such difficult options for the EU to side one way or the other that it might ratchet up the pressure for a deal. In principle, but I think then we go back to the issue that unless there is some movement from the Irish government, then it's extraordinarily difficult for the EU to move. What might be possible if the withdrawal agreement had gone through and then what the EU's relationship with the Irish government was developing through time about the backstop and whether there were alternative arrangements to it, etc. You might see that over time, the EU's willingness 100% to back the Irish government's position could, at least in principle, erode. I think expecting that to happen as things stand, without the Irish government itself making some move, it isn't going to happen because far too much of the EU's credibility has been sunk into backing Varadkar's position on the backstop. So then the question becomes, well, does any of this make the judgment that Varadkar has to make any different? And I'm not sure that it actually does, because this is really about the domestic politics of Ireland, which is not the same problem that, say, Macron or Merkel or any of the other European Union governments are dealing with. 
and the talk of the last couple of days of the possibility that Johnson is going to move on this and there is a Northern Ireland only backstop arrangement that's at least being mooted and that then throws back into focus the other thing that has lain underneath this story all the way along which is the role of the DUP their role in propping up the government but also their role as the kind of bellwether for the ERG and the Spartans that they can't move unless the DUP moves and a couple of things that might have changed I mean this government can't govern can't govern under any circumstance so it doesn't matter what the DUP does in that respect it's not like Johnson is dependent on these people in order to be able to govern because he's lost that that game is over so he's got relatively speaking possibly more freedom of maneuver to cut the DUP off but he will need the rest of the Conservative Party, the ones who are still members of the Conservative Party in Parliament to support him if he's going to get a deal through. And too many of them will look to the DUP for a lead. I'm not sure it's necessarily that they'll look to the lead. On one hand, as you say, that the DUP's position is much weaker because of the fact that the government doesn't have a majority any longer, so it doesn't require the supply and confidence arrangement that the DUP was providing. On the other hand, I don't think there can be any doubt about the fact that a Northern Ireland only backstop you know is a massive crisis of the union with Northern Ireland it basically says that Northern Ireland will remain under EU law while the rest of the United Kingdom leaves it and that is completely and utterly unacceptable to the unionist community in in Northern Ireland and can't but I think be a crisis of the union of the United Kingdom and that is a will be a momentous decision for Johnson to make whatever he might think of as as the parliamentary arithmetic in relation to the DUP. And on the wider parliamentary arithmetic, it said there's a new group, sort of centrist, if that's the word, group of people, including Stephen Kinnock, Rory Stewart and others, who seem to be trying to organise around getting people in Parliament ready to support a deal if one comes back, not make the mistake they think they made on the third vote of Theresa May's deal. And the number that's cited for this group is maybe 50 and includes a significant number of Labour MPs. You've got the hardcore Conservatives who voted against the third version of Theresa May's deal, and the DUP, which I think brings you to about 40. I mean, I know it's it's a much bigger issue than the parliamentary arithmetic, but is it possible that there is a trade-off that could work for Johnson there? I mean, my feeling is that there isn't, because there are a whole other group of Conservatives who are relatively loyal to Theresa May, for whom cutting off Northern Ireland is a whole different issue and that people who you might have counted on last time for the original backstop are going to balk at the Northern Ireland only backstop. I would be sceptical about the idea that there could be sufficient Conservative votes to be found if we're talking about a Northern Ireland only backstop. The difficulty that the Stephen Kinnock group has is that, first of all, 50 is really small when we're looking at the numbers that we've looked at being expressed for various Brexit options over the last few years. Sure, it can get bigger, but the people who are leading it, including Stephen Kinnock himself, are going to constantly get asked why it was that they didn't support at least the withdrawal agreement the second and the third time it was put to the House of Commons after the changes were made around the around the backstop, not in the withdrawal agreement itself, but in the protocols, etc., around it. So how do you say that they were willing to vote against this withdrawal agreement when it was put to Parliament by the executive as it then was and that now that they want as members of the legislature to resurrect essentially that same withdrawal agreement and because somehow it's not a Tory government led by 
Theresa May that is pushing this withdrawal agreement, that that now makes the withdrawal agreement palatable. I mean, what it does is it exposes, I think, the basic problem that a number of Labour MPs have had is, is that they've never had any substantive problem with the withdrawal agreement. The problem they had with it was it was negotiated by a Tory government. So then you go back to this whole question about, you know, like, is it the case that there are members of parliament who will actually only accept things when they are done by their own side or their own participation where do we end up constitutionally when we don't accept that the executive does in regard to treaties have some privileges but that then goes back to what i still think is the fundamental fact here which is the opposition does not currently have the capacity to replace the executive with a government of national unity or whoever it is that would then be palatable for the people who are talking about backing a deal. So as things stand, they're going to have to say, we wouldn't back it when Theresa May was Prime Minister, but we will back it when Boris Johnson is Prime Minister. Cannot see a Labour MP doing that and surviving. (sighs) They need the thing that the last week showed. It may be completely different in a month's time, and a vote of no confidence could pass, and Corbyn or someone else could form a government. But last week, they could do anything they wanted, but not that. And that's the thing they need to be able to do. And I think... In the absence of being able to do that, my instinct is a big mistake was made in not going for an election. And actually, I think Corbyn's instincts were right. And I think Corbyn actually was persuaded by people whose instincts were wrong to hold fire on this. I mean, who knows? He may well, an election may come and he may win it and all sorts of things. But in the context of what happened last week and what may be coming in a month's time, given the range of options, I actually think they were too quick to reject an election. I think the issue, if we're talking about Labour, is is that at least two different things are going on. You're talking about a fight in the party about what the party's policy towards Brexit should be. And I think that one of the significant things that has happened in the last fortnight is is that Labour has now moved to being a second referendum party. I mean, Corbyn spent a lot of time resisting Labour getting to that position, and it seems pretty unequivocally there now they're still fighting about about when so Watson wants it before an election Corbyn wants it after they're still fighting about the order they're still fighting about what position Labour would take in relation to it but that is still a significant shift from where we were even at the beginning of the summer because every time it seemed that Corbyn was getting dragged there he pulled himself back but the second thing that's going on obviously is a fight about who should be leader of the Labour Party or at least if not who should be leader of the Labour Party the people who are deeply opposed to Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party, thinking that Brexit and the struggle over Brexit provides us a means, if not for removing him, at least for very seriously weakening him. And that, I think, makes the the calculations that everybody's making, including Corbyn himself, much more difficult than they would otherwise be. Because if it were the case that the leader of the opposition was not Jeremy Corbyn in the present political circumstances... I think it would be reasonable to assume that a vote of no confidence would have passed and there would be an alternative government by now. So in one sense that what is happening is is the legislature is delegating the existing prime minister to go and do something that he doesn't want to do. And that's never a good idea. It's never a good idea to delegate someone who doesn't want to be your delegate. Because the legislature refuses to have confidence in the alternative prime minister. So enough of them have got some reason why they think it's better to send... Johnson as a delegate to do it than to send Corbyn as an actual Prime Minister leading an executive to do it. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Calculation clearly was, and it, it seems to have persuaded people very, very quickly, and including the Parliamentary Labour Party, that having Johnson as Prime Minister post the 31st of October, because he said do or die, die in a ditch, without having secured Brexit, is electoral gold for whoever is opposing him, whether it's the SNP, whether it's the Liberal Democrats, whether it's the Labour Party. And they may be right, of course. And the thought is that re-empowers Farage, makes a coalition between Johnson and Farage or a deal harder to negotiate, makes Johnson a much weaker candidate in the general election whenever it comes. And I get that. But set against that is the thought that it leaves him in post to do whatever he can do, and he may lack the skills to do it, but he may not, up until that point, including to set up, whether it's by resigning or simply by constructing a plausible narrative, that he has been the victim of this conspiracy between mm-hmm. Remainers in Parliament and Remainers in Brussels. I mean, I could be completely wrong here, but my instinct is they were too quick to think, everyone's trying to avoid falling into everyone else's trap, they were too quick to think they trapped him with this letter so that they will hold him in post past the point where he then becomes electorally toxic relative to taking the gamble on an election before uh, the 31st. But there were many advantages to having an election before the 31st for them, I think. Brexit wouldn't have happened. Johnson is flailing around. He doesn't look like he's... You know, he's, he's been bad. He's meant to have launched his campaign and it was a disaster from day one. Corbyn's been doing pretty well in terms of you know, the way he's come across. I think they got it wrong. I know I keep saying that. <laughs> Just... I, I certainly think that it, it is quite possible that they've got it wrong. I think that I might think about it though the other way round. It's not really a question about how it makes Johnson look, it's how it makes them look. And I think that one of the things that has happened, you know, like over the last fortnight, is because that part of the opposition that is concentrated on trying to stop Brexit and which is obviously not all of the opposition, quite the contrary, has in some sense smelt blood, is is that they've got overconfident and have forgotten that the, not an iron rule of politics, because uh, they not, don't hold not, anymore. They, yeah, they don't hold anymore. But something that political prudence would encourage every politician to think about is is how does this look to people who don't start in the same place as me? And I think that the scenes out of Parliament, particularly this week, you know, they are a gift, not just to the Conservative Party under Boris Johnson, but they're a gift to the Brexit Party under Nigel Farage as well. Uh, it's not difficult to portray that as a parliament that has lost, or enough of the parliament that has lost sight of the relationship between parliament and the electorate. And I think as well that the speaker's role in that only magnifies the sense that there is a sort of deep political divide in this country that isn't actually reflected in the way in which Brexit has been dealt with by Parliament itself. That doesn't mean, of course, that there aren't people arguing the leave calls in in Parliament, but the overriding 
perception, particularly, I think, or, or can be at least, particularly given the numbers of all the opposition parties being lined up together in this way and in some sense saying that the one thing that we won't do is have an election until we've got our way. I think that is a big political risk. And I think Corbyn gets that. I think Corbyn still believes that when the chance arises to take your case to the people, you take it. And that he was, I don't know if he was talked out of it or he was voted out of it by the Parliamentary Labour Party and people like Keir Starmer and others. And we may look back on that point. There was a real choice for Labour. It too quickly didn't become a choice. I think it was it became a foregone conclusion too quickly. There was one meeting of the PLP and they just seemed overwhelmingly to say, we're not falling into Johnson's trap. I'm not sure but that think, Johnson's trap was the real trap. But I think that that misses that it's a double thing going on because it isn't just a question about what Johnson's doing. It's a question of what they're doing in relationship to Corbyn inside the party. And that is clearly why Tom Watson wants a referendum before he wants a general election because I think one of the things that Tom Watson thinks is is that a second referendum will again weaken Corbyn's leadership. The other thing that's happened is that another position that seems to have hardened is the Liberal Democrats. We got the conferences coming up and these things will become clearer assuming the conferences happen but the Liberal Democrats under Joe Swinson look like they're moving towards a revoke position so that could be bad for Labour potentially and that it could solidify the choice for people who want a very clear anti-Brexit party to vote for. And it's an obvious dividing line. So Labour have moved to second referendum and the Lib Dems have kind of moved to the next square along. And so there is still that division. On the other hand, it might be a mistake by the Liberal Democrats because revoke is the one thing that even people who are anti-Brexit, a lot of those people have qualms about straightforwardly undoing the result of the referendum. How do you see the balance there? I think that in terms of the Labour side of the Liberal Democrat set of issues, that there's advantages to what they've, they've done because there's Corbyn finally pushed into the second referendum position and he's still being outflanked on the anti-Brexit side now by the, by the Liberal Democrats. But most of the seats that the Liberal Democrats have got a better chance of winning in a general election against the Conservatives. Now, obviously, they've taken away some... Conservative voters, Conservative Remain voters in the last 10 days or so who are completely disillusioned and furious with the way in which some of the Tory Remainers have been treated in terms of losing the whip. Actually, that's a bit unfair calling them all Tory Remainers, those 22 Tory MPs. Yeah, I mean, um, Rory Stewart is not a yeah, Remainer. Yeah, exactly. Now there's Kenneth Clark yeah, who've lost the whip. Now the question then is, is are those people people who are okay with the idea of revoking Article 50 without either a general election or a referendum. Now, you could say, it's a counter-argument to that, well, everybody understands that the Liberal Democrats aren't going to be part of the next government. But is that actually the case? I mean, they went into the last election, remember, basically saying, we're not doing a coalition with anybody. What position are they going to take on that this time? Now, Joe Swinton's got herself into the position where she says never to Corbyn. Is that going to hold? during the course of an election campaign. But you say, are they going to be comfortable with revoke without an election? But it's not revoke without an election. It's revoke as a manifesto commitment for the next well, election. So if people vote the Liberal Democrat with that in the manifesto and then the Liberal Democrats find themselves part of the next government, that's a completely different ballgame from revoking in this parliament. It is, but there's still clearly the, at least a theoretical possibility of a parliament trying to revoke before the 31st of October. 
and that's the other thing so to circle back to where we started because it does all circle back there's going to be there really is going to be a crunch week the penultimate week of October and it does seem very unlikely that an individual or a group of named EU politicians are going to want to be fingered for a no-deal Brexit by rejecting the request for an extension, even if Johnson says this request is incoherent and I'm not breaking the law by telling you this, I'm telling you the truth. They've sent me, I'm not telling you not to do it, I'm just telling you the facts. I still think they're going to be reluctant to do it, but there is a scenario where the EU could force the revoke issue back to Parliament. And we've talked about this, you know, that there is one set of scenarios and choices where we do get to the ultimate crunch decision for this parliament, which is no deal or revoke, mm. because of the incoherence of sending the delegate who refuses to be your delegate without breaking the law. I still think that's a possibility that parliament will find itself before the 31st, at least potentially having to contemplate the ultimate choice. I agree. I mean, I think... I think that I said, I can't remember when now, uh, sometimes... That's fine. doesn't really matter. <laughs> uh, that there was a way in which the underlying logic generated by all the difficulties mean that they're the two choices left standing by the time that we get to the crunch. And I say I'm, I'm well beyond making predictions, so I'm not going to say that I think that that is what will happen, but it is possible, yes. But I do think that's one of the reasons why people were maybe too quick on the opposition side to rule out an election to think it was a trap there are lots of traps here and an election would at least have ruled out the possibility that this parliament would face that choice maybe the next parliament at some point would face that choice but that would be after people including the liberal democrats had put revoke in their manifesto it does seem to be the ultimate nightmare for this parliament to face that choice and that possibility has still been left open and the reason it has been left open is because they've left boris johnson as prime minister I mean, he could force that choice. if He he would have to be incredibly skillful. And this is the one thing in all of these scenarios. He's really been hopeless in lots of ways. Reasons you talked about before. You warned people that his reputation for being a good communicator is not well deserved. And you can see that. I mean, it has been quite Trump-like, the chaos, the kind of mental chaos. I think that Cummings must wish that he could have Johnson for the Johnson bits and Gove for the Gove bits. <laughs> and the Gove bit would be the negotiations in the middle. I mean, Johnson can do some Johnson things, but you want someone like Michael Gove to do the complicated dance that will be involved in the middle of October. So whether Johnson can do it, I don't know. But there is at least a way a really skillful politician who is still holding the levers of executive power such as they are, such as they ever are, and such as are left, could engineer something that's really uncomfortable for his opponents. I think that that's true, but I think actually the more fundamental problem of not having an election is simply the the constitutional one that it has left us I'm going to say in completely uncharted waters we're in completely uncharted waters anyway but it seems to me that it's mind-boggling now the constitutional position in which we are in now is the legacy of both circumstances of Brexit and the the fixed term parliament act in which we have a, a government with no majority that wants to call an election or would like an election to happen in which parliament is made not only utterly clear it has no confidence is treating it as a delegate and parliament is saying that the one group of people who can't have a say in what happens over the next month is the electorate and uh, uh, 
mean, everything about that fills me with a certain sense of dread. Whatever happens, whatever happens about Brexit, because it is that that's something really quite fundamental about the relationship between the people who you know hold power in this country. And I don't just mean by that the executive, but the people in in Parliament as well, and and uh, the people who have to consent ultimately to the exercise of power over them. Two other things: Dominic Greaves' demand that government advisers release all their communications surrounding the prorogation issue past Parliament. And there is also still ongoing legal challenges to prorogation. So that the two so far have been defeated in the sense the Scottish case and the Gina Miller case. In both cases, the court said that uh, there was no unconstitutionality as far as they could see, but it will reach the Supreme Court. Again, the difference is this is broadly speaking, advantage to the Johnson side, it's now happening with Parliament prorogued. If the government refuses to do what Parliament voted for and release the communications, Parliament isn't sitting to do anything about it, not for another month. If the courts decide that Parliament should be sitting and shouldn't have been prorogued, Parliament isn't sitting to do anything about it. It's not clear that the courts can reconvene Parliament. So we've got, again, this extraordinary month in which these profound constitutional issues may be raised there may be the confrontation between the executive and parliament over the whatsapp messages Cummings's whatsapp messages or the courts deciding that parliament shouldn't have been prorogued but it's happening without parliament sitting and it's not clear anyone can do anything about it for this month so we're going to potentially come back as well with all of this having played out and having to kind of explode on the scene on the day of the queen's speech unless i've missed it is, is there anything that can happen in this month that kind of gets Johnson back on the hook in the way that he was on the hook when everything he did was being voted down by Parliament? Uh, not to my knowledge, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that there isn't. I mean, if we end up with a position where the UK Supreme Court makes a, a different judgment, I think that we're in such a different constitutional moment again. <laughs> because after all, in the original Miller case, the court simply said that Parliament had to vote on Article 50. It rejected the potentially more lethal cases, the Scottish and the Welsh cases, effectively, that would have given the Scottish and Welsh governments a de facto veto over the triggering of Article 50. So it didn't do anything in the Miller case that was that politically consequential, ultimately. But for it to say that the proroguing of Parliament was illegal... That, I think, so takes us to somewhere else and has the Supreme Court playing a role that just hasn't played in our country's constitutional politics that, you know, the question of like, what technically would happen, I think that in some sense is a bit secondary to, OK, now we're into a whole other ball game again because we've got the courts so deeply, deeply involved. And I also think that saying that proroguing Parliament is illegal when Parliament is sitting is different from saying it when it has been prorogued. Because there is an understanding that the courts, I mean, this is the basis of the original Miller judgment, I think, in part, that the courts do not, I mean, they, they let Parliament decide on its own affairs as much as possible. Yeah. But for the courts to somehow reconvene Parliament is not Parliament refusing to be prorogued. It's the courts usurping the authority, essentially, of the Crown. It is. But that would be weird. I mean, I'm not saying they won't do it, but the timing. So having just about survived this week, squeaked through intact, maybe not 
mentally, but at least in other respects, this government and got prorogation through and Cummings, by all accounts, is not going to hand over his WhatsApp messages and he told the journalist to go off to the north and talk to people who aren't rich and aren't Remainers and see how it looks from their point of view. You know, And then we've got this month. And then after this month, back it will resume again. There'll be the conferences, which could be all sorts of fun. And then we come back. Last question, the ultimate question, I suppose. When we come back, so Johnson looks weak now, but he's still there and he's got one advantage, which is that he's still there. Do you think there's anything that could happen in this month that makes him significantly weaker? Or should we assume that when this month is over, we kind of start again from where we are now, which seems to me it's pretty evenly poised between the two sides. The opposition have got an advantage, which is Johnson is hopeless and they are quite together on some issues. They've got a disadvantage, which is he's still Prime Minister, and he could cause them all sorts of damage from that position. But could anything happen in this month at the conferences, in the courts, where Johnson comes back significantly weaker than he is now? I mean, yes, if we just look at a bit of induction from past experience, just because, you know, completely unexpected things happen. I mean... Could Farage do something that pulls the rug out from under Johnson? Um... No, I mean, I can't see it really being Farage. I mean, the example was I was going to use was is that things clearly got quite a lot worse for Johnson when his brother resigned from the cabinet. And that wasn't something that people um, saw coming. I think that then had the knock-on effect of creating the context for Amber Rudd's resignation. Again, people might have seen that coming in terms of leaving the cabinet, though I don't remember anybody actually predicting it, but then saying she's going to stand as an independent Conservative candidate at the next election again that wasn't something that seemed to come somewhat out of left field so to speak so the idea I think that we now reach the temporary stasis until parliament returns I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about given as I say the ways in which we've been experiencing daily politics for the last few years so to prove that Helen is right we don't know what's going to happen while we were recording that the Scottish highest court has declared that the prorogation was unlawful and it is going to go to the Supreme Court. We don't have Kenneth here today but we will get him back to find out what on earth that means. We've done the second of our YouTube films this week. It's up now. It's on how a second referendum would work. We'll tweet the link. You can also find the link in our show notes if you look underneath the podcast wherever you get it and click on details or show notes. You'll find a lot of material related to what we've talked about there and that will include this too. Also keep an eye out on Twitter for the live events that we've got coming up. There are a few. There is one other thing that we want to talk about this week. When we started this podcast in 2015, and it was just a little experiment in Cambridge to see if we could do one, there were four of us who got going, me and Helen and Chris Brooke and our friend and colleague Finbar Livesey and our producer Hannah Critchlow, then when we moved on to American politics, we were joined by Aaron Rapport and by Catherine Carr, our producer who turned us into talking politics and made us what we are now. Regular listeners will know that Aaron, who had cancer, died earlier this summer. And now, almost unbearably, Finbar, who also had cancer, has died last week. People who listen to us will remember Finbar's voice. I'm sure it was completely memorable. And we're going to play some clips of Finbar in a moment so you can listen to him too. And you will remember how rich and musical and humorous his voice was. And he was. 
He was also sometimes really indignant about politics, and you'll hear that too. He was increasingly indignant about the way politics was going. He hoped that politics could be better, and I think he believed there was a kind of better politics struggling to get out, something more rational and evidence-based, and he never got to see it, and I don't know if we ever will get to see it, but he really believed in it, and he hoped for it. He was also, listening back to those episodes, really clear-sighted about some of the things that were coming. We've been listening to a lot of Finbar's episodes over the last week, and I was really struck by how Finbar saw some of the mess that were incoming, partly, as you'll hear, because as an Irishman living in this country, he thought that there were many things that the people who run this country had just ignored or forgotten about that were going to come back to bite them, and they did. Finbar saw all of that. He was a much-loved and cherished friend of this podcast and of many, many people here in Cambridge and beyond. And he will be deeply, deeply missed. You know, there's the classic phrase, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. And that's essentially what the parties are trying to do. They're trying to arm themselves so they've got the weaponry to negotiate. The problem is that negotiation theory, as you say, not to get too academic, has moved on. What they're doing is called positional bargaining. And what all the good negotiators do is called principle negotiation. You talk about interests, you talk about issues. You don't say that this is my flag on the ground because it just causes you trouble. So Finbar, you did say on an earlier podcast, and I hate to remind you of this, that it was impossible, more or less, for the Tories to win an overall majority in this election. I'm assuming, therefore, that this result has surprised you. What has most surprised you about it? (laughs) Surprise is an understatement. The exit poll came out and suddenly the whole tenor of the election changed. What surprised me most was that people like myself who trusted the polls were awfully led astray because the polls were so horribly, horribly wrong. We know that they're a ruthless party and they do think very hard about the things that they should worry about. Someone at the heart of the Conservative Party will now be drawing up a list for David Cameron of the things that could destroy him. Mm-hmm. What do you think they are? The For me, there are three things. Uh, That their image of economic competence will be ruined by the fact that they won't be able to meet their targets of having no deficit uh, in two years, given all the other promises that have been made and given where the economy seems to be heading. So that's the first one. The second is what is going to happen over the referendum, because it fundamentally changes the nature of politics in this country and across Europe. And the third then is obviously Scotland. So as you say, we're going to talk about a number of these things, but putting those together, three years from now, if there is still a deficit, if we have voted to leave Europe and Scotland is holding another independence referendum on the back of a very strong 2016 Scottish elections, the Conservatives might be looking to be in a very different position. This is a special edition of Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. My name's David Runciman and we are sitting in my office in Cambridge in the politics department. It's just gone 11 o'clock. Uh, we're just going <laughs> to... I did do a list. Uh, I'm joined by our regular panel, Helen Thompson, Finbar Livesey, Chris Brook. I was going to do Something sort of... How was it for you to get it going? <laughs> I slept for an hour with very disturbed dreams. I think I probably fell asleep about half past midnight. I'm as sleep deprived as I've been for the past three years. And then I woke up at four. To, an, to another world. <laughs> okay, so we'll start then. Okay. Uh... I have to admit that I didn't see it coming, but I just felt uneasy 
throughout the whole of the campaign. And about two weeks ago, I think it really started to hit home, not because I had any foresight, but because I actually just felt uncomfortable being in the country and not being British. And the combination of those personal moments along with the analytical moments were a very strange mix coming up to the vote. Once some of the early results had come in, I actually went and hid under my duvet because I didn't want to see the destruction happening in real time. I got back up again four or five o'clock and then was looking at it as everybody else was looking at it, going, I can't believe that that has just happened. But there's also, I saw about a week ago, one of those nice Cleopatra's nose things, which is, what was he called? Eric Joyce punches that guy, which leads to the Falkirk thing, which leads to Miliband changing the rules, which leads to the election of Corbyn, which leads to the loss of the referendum, which leads to the collapse of Western civilization. Thanks, Eric Joyce. (laughs) (laughs) It's all your fault. Very good. I didn't swear. Hurrah. And there is a view, there was a view expressed before the result, there's been a view expressed since, that in some ways this is most consequential for the island of Ireland um, and that that's where we might see the most friction in the short term. Is that is that right? I think it's absolutely right. And one of the incredible lapses in the debate coming up to the referendum was any conversation about Northern Ireland, given that it is the land border between the United Kingdom and then the rest of the European Union. There is a significant concern that long-term uncertainty and potential for Brexit could revive some of the worst violence that happened in Northern Ireland through the Troubles. And one of the issues is that a lot of younger voters may not have any memory or sight of what happened and what it was like to go through checkpoints and what it was like to have a militarised environment in Belfast and London, Derry, Derry and other parts of Northern Ireland. Fimba. I think that it's really dark. I think that we're at a moment in time where... The Conservatives are trying to work out um, who wants to be Prime Minister. They're not trying to run the country. Uh, The Labour Party is having an identity crisis and it's about to fracture. The union could split. And a great number of people who think that they voted for something are going to be incredibly disappointed. So anybody who says to me, oh, sure, it'll be fine. We'll get the internal politics of the party sorted out. We'll get back to politics as usual. We'll trigger Article 50 and we'll have some nice negotiation and then all will be fine, I think is ignoring the realities that they're facing. We've been talking politics and we've been remembering our dear friend and colleague Finbar Livesey. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... 
The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.